Can I say thank you for having me first? Because no one ever gets to say that first. Thank you for having me. You can say that. Welcome to the Witness Interview Podcast. Today we're talking to Thomas M. Wright, who is a very distinct person from Tom Wright. We'll sort out this confusion immediately. Who we call Chuckles. Who we all call Chuckles. And who is a writer, director, performer, actor on stage and screen. So the first thing I saw you in, correct me if I'm wrong, would have been Rubeville. It, I wasn't actually in you Rubeville, in, so yeah, I, I was trying to remember. Okay. But there was a, always a constant confusion right. between me and Mark Winter, but Mark Winter also wasn't in Rubeville. <laughs> but we both often get credited <laughs> with with any number of things that one another has done. And evidently we became so replaceable at a certain point that Jane Campion substituted Mark for me in the second top of the lake. Oh, good Because Jane saw Mark who I lived with for six years. I lived with Mark for six years and she saw him on stage in Sydney and thought he was so exactly like me that I got replaced in Top of the Lake. It's very funny because I was constantly confusing you guys. Yeah, no, I know. I was constantly we just, we getting just, you wrong. We just look the same. We're the same, we're same height. We're the same colour hair. We look very similar. We work from a similar place, I think, yeah, Mark and I. Yeah. You know, like we've always sort of, we've also always sort of beaten ourselves up terribly and, you know, found it very hard to, to, to work out how we were going to, you know, work. Um, so what would have been the first thing I saw you, you in? It could well have been a vast. Oh, okay. Um, it could well have been a vast or um, I, I'm sure you would have seen stuff before Black Lung at the Malt House, but it was, yeah. only, it was only two years there. So we formed Black Lung, Thomas Henning and I. Mm-hmm. I was 22 and yeah. he was 21. But we'd been working Which together for- Which year was this? It was 2006. Gosh. That's yeah. a while back, isn't it? I had that incredible 13 years ago. Yeah. Um, so, so 13 years ago, we formed Black Lung with a group of very close friends. And it's a wonderful time to form a company because we were all, you're broke and resigned to being broke. And there's mm. nothing holding you back from just working 24 hours a day. And that's all we did. We all lived together across two or three houses at any given time and sort of moved around. And it was really, um, it was really a kind of little golden period there of having nothing but work and only being able to justify yourself through the work that you were making, having no track record, having anyone, not anyone know who you, who you were. And I think, you know, Black Lung also happened at a really, at an extraordinarily exciting time for arts and for performing arts in Australia. It was a real eruption that kind of happened at that moment and had some extraordinary mentors and extraordinary people to follow and watch the transformation of the malt house was taking place. Mm. And there was kind of this huge upswell of support for independent theatre and for acknowledging it as kind of a medium that could get away with murder, it could do whatever it wanted in Mm. a way that main stage theatre couldn't because of its accountability and the subscriber base. And there was was just a huge changeover happening. There was a breaking of a kind of conservatism. Um, It was, and it was so exciting to witness. It was an awesome thing to be a part of and to be so so young in the middle of it all. Like I was just saying, to be 21, 22 years old and our touchstones and our knowledge of art was, you know, admittedly quite limited. You know, we worked from, we worked from, you know, British comedy of the of the eighties and nineties, okay. it was yep. a huge influence on yep. Black Lung, and then you know the touchstone of of I, me being there at the Victorian College of the Arts at a very exciting time too. There, mm-hmm. where 
Lindy's grip was kind of being, it was being slowly kind of wrenched away, but the systems that were in place there with Richard Murphy there with the postgraduate studies, really exciting animateurs and directors mm. who were there at that time who, who I was exposed to at that really young age, 20 years old, 19, 20 years old. I quit the VCA, but I was there while people like Oscar Redding were there. Mm-hmm. So Hamlet. That's the one. That's right. You would have seen me in the shop front doing Hamlet in Northcote. Okay, I played Laertes well, just... in that production of Hamlet. It was almost the first thing I reviewed for Theatre Notes wow. when I started. It was one of the very first reviews. Well, you so, know, that yeah. was that was, that was all, all of us. a very exciting production, guys, by the way. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. And Oscar was... remains one of my closest friends. And yeah. actually when I was shooting Acute Misfortune, this feature film, I um, had Oscar there with me every day. Oh, really? Oscar would just sit by the monitor with me and just turn around to me occasionally and give me a thumbs up because that's what we do for one another. I was just speaking to him yesterday. He's at film school in London okay. right now working with Mike Lee and all these people. Oh and God. and so, you know, you, you have these constant these touchstones. These continuities, yeah. Yeah, and of course Simon Stone as well, who was also in the same year. And Simon and I were best friends yeah. before we both started VCA. Yeah, um, okay. So Black Lung and Hayloft sort of started side by side yeah. as well. They yeah, very much a, a diptych. Yeah. I mean, I, I confess... Acute Misfortune, which was at MIF last year, wasn't it? And is being released. Acute Misfortune was at MIF last year, and we won the Critics Prize. Yeah. We won the Age Critics Prize at MIF last and year, and then being released this year. It's out now. Out now. It's in out fact. now in cinemas. Well, I don't know when the podcast came out. It might be out. Uh, it was out. Um, <laughs> it was hopefully, out now. Hopefully, it sticks around long enough. And actually, we've had a really strong opening, mm-hmm. especially relative to the type of film it is and in this period of time for cinema where there's really record low attendance, especially yeah. for Australian cinema and we don't quite have the cultural champions out there, you know, really um, shaking the whatever the banners are, or, yeah. you know, to, to get people out there. But the film is actually um, doing really well but it's it's out in cinemas in um, across the country pretty much in every major city okay. except, interestingly, for Adelaide who wouldn't show the film. Really? They wouldn't show the film because they don't believe they have an audience for Australian cinema. Oh, that's very depressing. It's a very, it's a strange attitude because you think, um, how are you ever going to have an audience for Australian cinema if, if you, you won't never show it? Yeah, it might just be that they thought a film called Acute Misfortune wasn't going to do too well in the week <laughs> of the um, of the election. <laughs> Turned out that it, 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 it was, was a it was a good barometer yeah. for where it headed. From Black Lung to directing and co-writing, you co-wrote. I co-wrote Acute Misfortune with with Eric Jensen. There's some really amazing reviews. It's prompted some very excited critical writing, I have to say. um, Lauren Carroll Harris's review in particular in Kill Your Darlings. My God, what a piece of critical writing. It is Mm. incredible and made me go, I really have to see this film. I hope it does. I was just saying before you pressed record on this, the thing I'm most afraid of with this film is that people won't go and see it because they're afraid of Adam. Yeah. But I would say that's not... It's a film about Adam Cullen, the visual artist. The the Archibald Prize-winning painter who died in 2012 at the age of 46. And it's based on a book by Eric Jensen called Acute Misfortune. Eric um, Jensen is currently editor-in-chief of Schwartz Inc., isn't he? Of Schwartz Media, that's Schwartz right. And, Media. He, and he founded the Saturday paper at the age of 24. Yes. But this happened. This story takes place before that when he was a 19-year-old just past cadet writer for the Sydney Morning Herald and uh, he was sent out to write a profile piece about Adam for the Sydney Morning Herald. And on the basis of that article and Eric's insights, 
Um, and it's a fascinating article, that first right. article, because the tone is very different to the tone of the biography, okay. which was finished four years later, uh, six years later. Right. Um, but on the strength of that article, Adam invited Eric to write his biography for Thames and Hudson. Okay. And Eric moved out there and spent the next years, four years on and off with Adam, um, documenting the things that he said and the things that he did and observations. And then he continued those investigations out to interview people in Adam's circle um, right. and in his past, which Adam was very resistant to. Um, mm. And it was a very it was a very violent relationship, a very difficult relationship between these two people where, you know, it's quite sensationally, um, Adam shot Eric in the leg with a shotgun and he threw him off a motorbike and he lied to him. He yeah, lied to him lied for, for many for, for yeah. many for many years. But I was interested in it because it was a relationship based on lies and a yeah. meeting and a meeting from both sides and a me- meeting of two of two people um, from two extraordinarily different disciplines that have their own their own language, and I was interested in the destructive qualities of both what it could be to be a visual artist, where uh, alternate meanings can be applied to anything, and which lets a guy with swastika tattoos on his arms have his paintings in every major gallery in Australia, and hanging in Malcolm and Lucy Turnbull's house, and then um, the idea of journalism, which holds at its core the idea that there can be some solid diagnostic truth which <laughs> yes. which in which in the act of biography you know is really fraught as an idea totally because fraught, yeah. and that's so that's why the film is based in this relationship because as we all know it you can be in a relationship for 15 20 years and turn around and look at the other person and realize that you really don't know who that person is they've mm. slipped through your fingers we slip through our own fingers we do, yep. and i think cinema is a fantastic medium to discuss that sort of concept you know it's yeah. uh, i mean one of the things that Lauren said about the film, which really made me want to see it. Well, she said two things. One part of her review is an analysis of this kind of gross masculinity that is so heroicised in Australian culture. And the other is her observations on what Australian culture is, what it values, what it doesn't value. And she says that the film really examines this in a hypercritical, I really talk multi-level about, way. I really yeah. talk about this film as a film about culture. It's about yeah. how we learn to be. Culture is a yeah. learnt thing. Yeah. Um, what we, we, learn, we learn what to desire and we learn a language um, fundamentally through egoism because it's about how we present ourselves to other people and how we want to be thought of. It can it can kind of really be reduced to a world in which truthfully we have very little control yep. where we need to create the illusion of control for ourselves and society accommodates certain things around that and, and I was interested in, in the space that was given Adam yeah. to occupy and he chose to occupy that space. He occupied it very violently, very aggressively. But that was part of his whole kind of loose appeal, wasn't it? It, well, it was, but it's also important to remember that Adam was also a performance artist. Yeah. He began as a performance artist. Interestingly, Adam yeah. was most famous for a performance work when he was 19 years old right. where at art school he um, chained a pig's head to That's his right. ankle and, and he had it chained to his leg for a number of weeks. The the time that he told people it went for <laughs> changed, you know, depending on how he felt, I think. But, but in truth, it was there for long enough that eventually he had to take it off. Eric quips in the book that, you know, the 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 end of that experiment was really just people wouldn't let him on the bus and he had to sleep with his leg out a window. <laughs> but but I saw some photos. I had some photos sent. This is where Adam is interesting to me. Because Adam was toying with the idea of that sort of gesture. Adam was very conscious in his later life in the throes of his 
awful addiction and self-destruction and sickness because this was a man who was dying for a long time. It became a kind of self-parody where the the, the lines of irony were no longer visible. It, it just became him and mm-hmm. it was, that's tragic to see. Mm-hmm. He, be, he became quite toxic to, you know, use that phrase that best sums up that sort of behaviour. When I saw these photos of him that his ex-girlfriend had sent me from the time when he was 19, here's this quiet young man with a shock of brown hair, dressed in a very kind of uh, restrained way, a grey kind of trench coat, almost looking quite mod-like, with this very, very artfully laid out pig's head, which had obviously been acquired from a, from a butcher shop not just hacked off or some sort of with the rock and roll playing or whatever. It was like, no, this was a restrained piece of performance art and the the chains that he used were these extraordinary black kind of wrought iron chains. Oh, okay. And you could see there was a gentleness to it and you could see there was something else at work, which I think I felt was a tiny bit missing from Lauren's article, which is the fact that he died at 46. Mm-hmm. That wasn't self-promotion at work. No, no, no. That is a very sad and very unwell person. And I and I could see a root of that also in that work where it challenged people to be kept at arm's length, to move away from him. But it it, it forced that also. There was also a declaration that he was kind of somehow very alone mm. by doing this by doing this thing. And that's and, and self isolating. Yes. So I mean, yeah, to, that's a paradox be, that's there yeah. with Adam's work. Yeah. Because um, to bring it back to Black Lung, where I was always fascinated by the, the work you guys did in Black Lung, which was so male. I mean, you worked with a few yeah. women, but not many. So it was a work by men and about men and about yeah. masculinity. And it was always, as you were saying, a, a loose and abject kind of masculinity. It was kind of, I remember a review where you talked about it as these kind of, you know, negative associations of the body as a kind of weepy, leaking, pathetic thing, which are traditionally used in very disparaging ways to talk about women's bodies, was Mm. something that we, as very young men, gravitated to because I think we felt very viscerally that we'd been presented a lie about Mm -hmm. how we were supposed to be. Yeah. And um, we wanted to – and interestingly, I mean, this this is not something I would probably have discussed unless it was with someone like you who probably has some sense of the history of our work but actually it's quite close to some of Adam's yeah, work. Going to, that, that, that continuity of interrogation maybe of Absolutely. what um, masculinity Adam is. Took it into, it, Adam it, took it in a direction that I could never agree with. Yeah. I think it's very, it's very clear that this film in no way condones or uh, excuses Adam his behaviour. But this, this, this idea of a far more complex spectrum Mm. Of of masculinity, and what is what is, I mean, because masculinity is constructed by the society that it exists within. It's also and innate. Is made. Yeah, <laughs> it's also innate. It's also yes. an innate. It's I mean, also it's an all innate these complicated fact. Things. That's yeah. right. And and you know, I mean, you know, as we were walking here today, we were talking about the fact that we we found the society found the police found another torn up person in a park the other day and it's at the hands of another young man and um i think that's where the conversation is is eternally um important mm. because there's something fundamentally wrong with young men that yeah. they that they that they gravitate to war that they gravitate to violence that they gravitate to self-destruction i mean the yeah. self-destruction in young men is um is is extraordinary 
And as a young man, it's it's well, I was. I don't know if I am anymore. <laughs> I'm at a tipping point right now. But but I, man, I thought yeah. I was. Yeah. But even as someone with a seven-year-old son, and this film is actually dedicated to my son, I I, I feel I've always felt compelled to kind of to kind of um, to to wrestle with that. And I mean, being try a man and being masculine and masculinity, what all those things mean in in a society that's kind of where it's. There's things like hypermasculinity, and and it's only defined in these very kind of narrow ways in popular well, culture. That's where I was so interested in yeah. making a film because, you know, theatre is always about a conversation about form and content, and at its best, it's that in in the realms of real deep deep meaning, whatever mm. it is that you're dealing with, you're reaching through the specificity you're trying to deal with to kind of these truths or whatever. You know, that's the that's the aim that anyway, whether you get there or not. <laughs> and so. Engaging with film and making an Australian film and making a, a film in this kind of lineage with the kind of man that Adam presented himself to be, that Adam wanted to be, I found that really early on in thinking about the film, in the early days of script writing, in the early days of planning, we were really engaging with the history of Australian film, with the history of these sorts of characters. Okay. And, you know, Adam... Because there is a history, there's a track. So, so it goes strong. all the way back. So strong. And how, how much is that tied up with colonialism and Australian colonialism? Well, Adam says in the beginning of the film, you know, I, you know, there's another thing is that people often dismiss Adam as having some sort of hatred for suburbia. I think it was the people mistake love for hatred there. Adam felt everything for Australian suburbia. He was an artist who made work about suburbia. His master's thesis was about it was was about suburbia. And, and, and an engagement, you know, with suburbia and with his origins of suburbia. And early on in the film, he says, um, there's nothing in human history that you can't find in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. You look around you and you see all these quiet streets, but they're the fortunes of war. And I felt that was a, a, a as much redemption as I was as I would ever give Adam, right? Because I feel that he was grappling with an Australian artist tend to grapple with a hidden darkness that's that's in our work. Uh, when we shot a proof of concept for this film, I I engaged a visual artist called Warwick Baker, whose whose photography book I'd found at the National Gallery, right. and um, Warwick photographs Australia as though it's a crime scene. <laughs> and I thought that right. was a really interesting that way to, interesting, to, yeah. to think about this place because because it is. And, you know, people have often criticised Australian cinema for being very dark, but you look at our top authors, it's like Tim Winton, Richard Flanagan, Chloe Hooper, Helen Garner, Christos Cholkas. I mean, it's hardly... Um, it's hardly bright and sunny, you know. These yeah. are people who go deep into a kind of hidden latent darkness. And so... Going back to film and filmmaking, you know, Adam's closest friends were these people who he met through Australian cinema. Mm-hmm. He painted David Wenham yeah. in character as Brett Sprague in Rowan Woods' film The Boys. And which that is was based on the play. Which was based on the play yeah. and which was based, well, not based, but incidentally actually happened at a similar time as the Anita Cobby yeah, murder. And so he saw David Wenham in that performance and painted him and painted him for the Archibald. I think Lauren mentions in that article mm. the fact that, ironically, most people thought he was Diver Dan yeah. in that portrait and thought he yeah. was dreamy and that sort of thing, you know. Yeah. But I think I think it's underestimating Adam to think that he wouldn't have actually got a kick out of that because he might have he might have been disappointed by that. But I think he also would have loved it too. I think he was able to embrace that sort of duality yeah. about someone like about someone like David. But also he was best man at Chopper Reed's wedding. And he loved Chopper. Uh. They were really dear friends. And um, 
And yeah, it's a strange thing that we have in Australia where we had, you remember Chopper went on all those speaking tours and that sort of stuff where it's like this is a guy who's murdered multiple people and and he's appearing at business functions to tell anecdotal things about shooting Sammy the Turk in the eye and... That was very strange, that whole... I knew someone for quite a long time who was in prison with Chopper Reed Mm -hmm. and he despised him. It was, um, you know, that that kind of heroicising of this actually really mediocre violence. And I think Chopper is a fascinating film. I love that film and I love that film for its immorality. And I think, you know, (laughs) Andrew Dominic, I remember him saying he couldn't get the film financed because he couldn't explain to anyone that the film couldn't have a moral conclusion. I think the film has a subtle moral conclusion, which is that this man, this is another eternally lonely figure. The film ends with him sitting alone on the end of, on the corner of his bed in his prison cell and having a cigarette after everybody's gone, after it's all left. This is an institutionalised person. Mm. And Adam, in his own way, you know, if the world is a prison, you know, was kind of institutionalised in his in his own way. But he came from, you know, like a very middle class family. Yeah, and he did. So then he transformed himself into this but, kind of outsider artist. But he also came the- from a family where his mother was born in a tent in the bush, where his father came from the bush. There were people from the country and his father was kind of, well, you'll see when you see the film, one, he was a kind of legend of suburbia. He's this roguish, larger than life, hypersexual, you know, leprechaun-like figure. It, there's been a couple of comments about this film that there's a certain eatable quality to, to, to Adam, and I think that's true and often, you know, that kind of eatable thing is unpacked in its most obvious form, but I think it can also be read as you want the love of your mother and to replace your father, mm-hmm. and, and Adam found himself incapable of both of those things okay. for very for very kind of complex reasons. But I also think it's really important to remember that, you know, Acute Misfortune, even though you haven't seen it yet, you'll, you'll go see it and I hope you like it, but is, um, is very much a dual portrait. It's very much yeah. a portrait of... Eric is really our protagonist. Yes. But it's not about but it's not about his success either. We don't end the film with Eric founding the Saturday paper. We end the film with Eric leaving Adam's house with a final kind of little key to try to unpick Adam in a diary that Adam gives him. And really in that way the film becomes much more sort of about how you make meaning out of grief, like how any of us go through an awful thing. We have to take something from it. We have to find mm. something to to take. It, it's shaped us and changed us um, in some way. Yeah. I mean, it's also the thing of how the media is fascinated by this kind of figure and how these things can become kind of unholy relationships that perhaps reflect it, each other and distort each other. Yeah, and we talked a little about about the potential. I mean, we had to we had to consider every motive and every. And every reason why Eric would go out there and Eric would remain and all the different qualities that could be feeding this relationship. And one of the things we did discuss is this idea of, of um, Eric in a kind of conflict photographer archetype, like mm. by being there with his camera, not that he had a camera, he's there with his notepad, you know, this sort of situation where in a conflict zone, you know, um, a general pulls somebody over and says, here, take a photo of this and shoots someone in the head. Have you then become party to this act Mm. of violence that might not have occurred otherwise because they're trying to sell the idea of their potency and control to you? But again, this is a very masculine kind of construction, isn't it? Yeah, it is. (laughs) Men men reflecting each other, creating each other in a way. (laughs) Yeah, 
I think that's probably true. I think you know there's there's an interesting question of there there certainly are very prominent female figures in this film, mm-hmm. but as to why aren't there more? I think very simply because Adam had both frightened off and been frightened off having any female company anymore in his mm-hmm. life because I think anything anything that could be seen as vulnerability became weakness and weakness was the thing to be um, was the thing to be avoided. Was it? And he he became um, obsessed with control, and I think in some ways that's quite understandable when a person is dying. I think the way that he expressed that was obviously um, unhealthy again in its own way. So, what did he die of? Was, um, it, was it obvious? He died Bad from, choices. It, it was Adam was drinking between one and two bottles of vodka a day and shooting up five to ten times a day. Okay. Um, he died of he died of liver failure. He died right. from alcoholism. Right. It was alcoholism that, that ended his life. Yeah. And quite literally, uh, the final lines in Eric's book are the the veins in, esophag- in his esophagus ruptured and he drowned. Wow. Um, so yeah. it's so it's that was the thing is that I saw the film then as as a detective story because the inevitability of his death was so strong, and the fact of his death was so inevitable um, and so violent that the mm. film became like a crime. His life became like a the the playing out of an inevitable murder, a self murder of, of himself of himself. Yeah. And so then the film becomes really this literary detective story where you send the viewer in there and try to equip them in a very deep way with a language to try to unpick this, with a language to try to understand that. And the gift of making a film about a visual artist is that they give that to you. Mm. The additional gift is that Adam wasn't a genius. Adam was an incredibly gifted painter. So within that work there is a key that is interpretable. It It won't slip through. It shouldn't slip through your fingers because it's not worth $100 billion, which kind of tends to discredit many people's interpretations of the work you can yeah. come to it and look at it and try to and try to use it as a as a way to understand him so uh, i know you've said several times that you, you this is not a redemption arc that you're exploring here how do you, how do you portray this kind of life and this kind of ideology for want of a better word without glorifying it at the same time. I think Adam's end probably fairly did away yeah. with any intention that you could have had there. It's hardly but train spotting. I don't think anyone leaves and going, oh, I could kind of try a little taste just to see because some of that looked pretty fun. It's like it's a um, – people have talked about the film as, as difficult, even though it's incredibly – I think an incredibly beautiful film and aesthetically a very inviting film. Um, I don't think anyone leaves thinking that um, – Adam's behaviour is in any way tolerable. And in a lot of ways, I don't feel that I needed to do much work Mm -hmm. because Adam's attitudes are so out of step with the majority of people these days and and even people who might go in there whoever they are who'd actually go see an independent Australian film who agree with <laughs> who agree with those those statements of his I think you would be left feeling that that that, that hatred led directly to his death I don't think mm. there's any you know there something is... went ter- something went terribly terribly yeah. wrong yeah yeah, yeah yeah it's very clear I was just thinking whether whether we should talk a bit about what you've been doing between Black Lung and Acute Misfortune, about why you stopped doing theatre and how you've sort of sure. started doing film. And, sure. Yeah? Sure. Well. Do you want me to do that now? <laughs> <laughs> yes, let's do that. I The last play that I actually did, believe it or not, was Baal. 
Right. So 2000 and 2012. Well, that's actually wrong. I'm wrong already because okay. we made Doku Rai. That's right. I was we went to over say, to, we went over to Timor and um, and that was like four years, wasn't it? It was like, a long time. Yeah. So that began with Robert Connolly, who produced Acute Misfortune, who also produced The Boys, which was his first film. And now mm-hmm. Acute Misfortune is his most recent film. But he cast me as one of the Balibo Five alongside Mark Winter. That's right. I remember that. And um, when then people mixed us up. Again. <laughs> um, which is fine. Um, no one better to be confused with. But um, so we went over to Timor and while we were shooting Balibo, I became very close with a group of young guys who were basically living in the slums in the middle of Dili who were all artists. And a number of them were involved in theatre and a number of them were involved in visual arts and a number of them were involved in music. And one of those guys was the lead singer of one of the biggest bands in Timor called oh, Galaxy. Yeah. And... Out of that shoot, I also became friends with this guy called Michael Stone, who was the chief military advisor to Jose Ramos Horda, and he started flying me in and out of the country. And I flew in and out of the country pretty constantly and built up this network of relationships where I thought that what I could do is take a large enough crew over there to build the structure of a major festival work and work with those guys there in concert with Black Lung and create this show which we could then tour around to all the major festivals. And astoundingly, that that happened. Yeah. I remember Stephen Armstrong, who was the head of the Australia Council Theatre Board at the time, said to me, that's the most amount of money we've ever given anybody for the least <laughs> amount of information. <laughs> but it just seemed so interesting, you know, and, and truthfully it, it was this opportunity to engage with a group of people from that background who grew up in an atmosphere of terrible fear and mass slaughter, who are then artists and find that actually there were these extraordinary similarities and obviously much to learn and much to confront. Just the, the best way I can describe what it was to try to make that show was we got over there, we set everybody up on an island off the coast of Timor because otherwise you just lose everybody very quickly because there's family <laughs> obligations and all sorts of stuff. And so they appreciated that too. But we set up in an abandoned Portuguese hotel on this island um, and there was about 30 of us over there. We brought 10 interns over from the Victorian College of the Arts. We had to we had to run, we had to basically get power and water for right. this town that we were in. Um, and then uh, we had a bunch of people from the community sort of helping us out and some of them living with us. And in the very earliest days, they, they had very um, varying degrees of English, each of the individual guys we were working with. So I took them aside individually and would sort of sit down and say like, okay, you, Alison, you can't speak. You don't have too much English. So I'll explain with you for an hour and a half, very, as basically as I can, as intimately as I can, what contemporary theatre is (laughs) and how we are going to try to make something where we need to agree that we're going to do the same thing each night, particularly because it's going to be multiple languages and da 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 And I spent, spent a couple of days doing this. And they all called a meeting with the producer and said, what is happening here? And he said, what do you mean? I said, Tom is meeting with each of us individually and we we are getting really paranoid. <laughs> this right. is, this is this, what is going on, what's, what's happening. And you realise that in a place where people have been forced to be clandestine for 25 years, unless there. you do everything in a completely open, inclusive way, they think you're planning to assassinate one of them. Oh, you know, wow. they think someone yeah. they think something that something really is very wrong. 
So that's just a taste of how complex that the psychological dynamic was between these groups to try to make this thing, as well as I brought over a filmmaker, Amiel Corton-Wilson, who's a real... Mentor to me, in so far as coming to cinema, he was one of those people who just said, "Just do it, just do it. You can mm. do it. You know, you can move over to that medium. You don't require anything else." But anyway, so so we made that show and that toured around. But but uh, Jane Campion had seen me playing the lead in Baal and asked me to put, to put down a tape for Top of the Lake. And out oh, of so that, I was that I was okay. cast in I was cast in Top of the Lake. And off the back of Top of the Lake, I worked nonstop in film for five and a half years. I had a child. I went straight from so I, I shot I saw something like four or five seasons of American and international television, as well as mm. four feature films overseas. And then I came back to shoot Sweet Country with Warwick Thornton. And while I was shooting Sweet Country with Warwick, the wheels all went in motion to finance Acute Misfortune, oh, which okay. I'd been writing in the background the whole right. time. Then that then that happened. And here you are. Yeah, and I think the interesting so it's thing. It's been a life full of incident. Full of incident and and really relentless work mm. too. I think one of the really interesting things about coming to film from theatre is that complete preoccupation with form and content, Mm. with marrying the two, with mirroring them. And it's also to do with working from enormous limitations because, you know, the early days of Black Lung, if we had 50 bucks and three weeks, we'd make it. We'd make a work. We'd just say it was on. We'd give it a name and three (laughs) weeks later it would be there. And whatever it had, it had that vitality and it had – a resourcefulness. I always remember mm. Oscar Redding used to say, if you work in film and you want to turn a man into a dog, it costs $40,000 and a team of VFX technicians yep. in theatre, you just drop to your hands and knees and you do it committedly. And and I think it was trying to take that ethos and that philosophy over to that medium. But also it's the fact that from the age of 22, you're telling 60 to 90 minute long stories. Yeah. And most filmmakers now come from advertising. They come from spending two and a half minutes trying to sell you something. You are so right. In a really, yep. in a really insidious way, yep. often in a very cynical way, deeply yeah. cynical, because it appears to be a film, but it's yep. not. It's a, it's, it's saying, you know, do you remember when you held your first child? Bigger cheese. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just like, I mean, come on, that is it's- so cruel. So, so I think, but whatever. Regardless of the the actual meaning within it, it's the fact that you never have an opportunity to grow the muscularity of what it is to hold an audience for that amount of time yeah. and keep them keep you, them hooked in. One thing that always struck me was that I think it was Werner Herzog's film of Wojciech. There's a long monologue by Klaus Kinski uh-huh. being Wojciech, which goes for like 12 minutes or something. Could you know? tie back into Adam Cullen there too, well, by the way. Well, there you go, Even I bet. worse, I think. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a really good film, Wojciech. Um, but all these people, all these film people going, oh, my God, Maybe it was half an hour. I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, it was not one cut for 30 minutes. And we sort of going, well, this, people do this in the theatre every night. Well, you know, there's you a know, certain like- number of films that loom pretty large as first features when you go to make a feature now. And, and really for me, the, I love cinema and mm. I just desperately wanted to speak the language of the people that had spoken to me. But but to look at certain films that you're following on from, certainly the best film about an Australian artist, which is My Brilliant Career, mm-hmm. which is Gillian Armstrong's first film, yeah. for God's sake, but Steve McQueen's film Hunger mm-hmm. and Justin Kurzel's film Snowtown. Yeah. I love that that was a touchstone in this film about Adam yeah. too, where, of course, that's the person that, that Adam would have wanted to represent him was 
was John Bunting, but Justin came from a theatre background okay. and a theatre design background. Yeah. And I think that's just fascinating because it gives you, it gives you, Steve McQueen is a visual artist and a video artist um, and a brilliant video artist. I mean, Steve McQueen's video art is just extraordinary. He was a Turner Prize winning artist by the time he went and made Hunger. But I think there's a huge set of assets that come with coming from another medium. Without and doubt. because And because yeah. film is such a learnt medium, we have it in our bodies. We know it so deeply. We've, we've felt it so deeply um, that the rules are actually very, very strong compared to something mm-hmm. like theatre. You just cannot get away with as much. Yeah. The engine of narrative, however you're getting it to drive and move, it has to be ever-present. You can't you, – you, certainly for the type of cinema that I like, you can't really have a moment without it. But there are many ways to access narrative. There are many yeah. ways to communicate narrative, and they don't re- they don't require someone saying, you know, this is the this is the toughest case of my life. You know, <laughs> they you know, it's like we can we can sense that before that person has to say that. You know, it's um, and 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 I and I loved that, and I loved playing with it as a as an as a as a visual and auditory sensory experience because there are just that many more ways that you can and that many more opportunities to to dig into people's subconsciousness you know and to plant ideas in there you know and I love that people are responding to the film like that I love that the people even when I, I find it a little bit frightening and a little bit intimidating because I I am a you know young white man making this film and I am making this film about about masculinity but it's um, the idea of it as a kind of toxic thing that exists only within people is is kind of an inadequate assessment yeah. it's it's a it's a bigger thing it's a bigger cultural thing and it's also a primal thing also you know that's that's what I was trying to discuss superb thank you Thomas that seems like a very good place to wind up thank you you've been listening to the witness interview with Thomas M Wright I'm Alison Croggan sign up subscribe to witness so we can keep doing this kind of thing <laughs> <laughs>